0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. There are two senses of time that run side by side through the scriptures. And, confusingly, they are both often translated into English as a day. In the first sense, a day can refer to a long, expansive time in which God acts to bring about his work. We see this in the sense of day, that is, on display in the creation account of Genesis, an expanse of time defined not by hours and minutes, so much as by the scope and purpose of God's labor in creating. In the second sense, a day can also refer to particular, punctuated times that usually come at the end of those longer arcs of time. What the scriptures often refer to as the day of the Lord refers to one of these sudden times, a sudden visitation of God that draws from the imagery of an ancient king who wins a great victory, not in a long beleaguered siege, but in a sudden and stunning display. It is a day when the essence of God's long steady and often quiet work is revealed. A day when he comes close to examine his work, and a day when he pronounces judgment upon it. In our lesson from Joel, both kinds of time are on display. It is unclear exactly as to what era of ancient Israel's history the prophet is speaking to, but likely, It is to the people of Jerusalem who had returned from the captivity in Babylon. Joel's prophecies are full of references to the whole prophetic tradition of the Old Testament and to the Torah itself, making use of what God had said to his people at critical historical times, to communicate a message of preparation to his own time, to his own people, and, one that echoes in all times. But Joel's words also punctuate that long sense of time by declaring a coming day of the Lord, a day of visitation and judgment, a day of vindication for faithfulness and of judgment for unrighteousness that must befall Jerusalem. These words, would have invoked a relatively recent and extremely frightful memory for the people. The last day of the Lord they had known resulted in the scattering of the people from the Promised Land, sending them out among the nations of the Babylonian and Persian empires. They had lapsed into idolatry and injustice. They had refused many offers to repent. And so, on a particular day, they were judged. But even in that judgment was the graciousness and everlasting mercy of the Lord, who in time called back a remnant of his people and redeemed them from all the nations to which they had been sent. In the light of that day, and in the memory of it, Joel's call to fast and weep and our lesson refers to another day that is mirrored on that day, another day still to come. And so his call is a call to all the people of God to gather, to gather at the temple, the heart of the promised land, to lament their unfaithfulness, to pray for repentance, and to renounce distraction and compromise, that they might be prepared for the day of the Lord's next visitation. Seen in light of the Gospels, Joel's vision of that future day of the Lord is what we see beginning to unfold on Palm Sunday, when the Lord enters triumphantly in the manner of a victorious king and immediately goes straight to the temple at the heart of Jerusalem to visit it, to assess it, and to judge it. As we know from the Gospel story, he will find it to be a house of thieves, and pronounce its dissolution, the end of all that it represents because it was not ready on the day of its visitation. But even in the midst of that judgment, God in his mercy makes good on his promise to Joel to receive and restore the remnant who does turn to him. On the cross, Jesus will behold a divided Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that has rejected its Messiah, and at the same time the Jerusalem that turns to him in a kind of frightful humility to behold the sight of God who comes among them to redeem them. He inaugurates a new day, a new creation to follow that day of visitation. He writes a new law on his people's hearts in Pentecost, and he ascends to the Father with the promise to come again, to consummate this work, to bring about a final day of the Lord. And that is the time we're living in. The reality that the day of the Lord is very near is the backdrop of the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord's call to a fast that engages the heart and not mere performance echoes the prophecies of Joel and bestows this kind of fasting, one that touches the heart, as a discipline to be taken up by all of Christ's disciples. The Lord is clear when he teaches about the nature of true fasting that it is a discipline that shapes the heart, our inmost, truest self, as the scriptures understand it, our source of life, if you will, the temple of our person. It is where Christ desires to come and abide. And so it must be set in order. Joel's call in his time amid perfunctory sacrifice was the pretext for him to call the people to a genuine and deep humility before God and not to mere pious gestures, not to a mere going through the motions of looking sorry. Jerusalem, without all of these things, is just a city. The temple at its center is just a building unless the hearts of the people who offer their worship there are truly and deeply turned to God. Fasting and prayer do this very thing. They turn the heart again to God. They make ready the place on which his scrutiny on the day of the Lord will fall. And a heart that refuses the call to this renewed repentance is a heart that will not be prepared for the day of the Lord. The heart, like the Temple of Jerusalem, must again become a house of prayer. Ash Wednesday is a gift of clarity, a clear reminder that time has an end, and that end is the person who will come to stand among us and who even now wishes to dwell within us. Ash Wednesday is a microcosm of the whole Lenten season. We receive at the beginning the pronouncement that the end is coming. And then we receive the end himself as a gift in the Eucharist. There is a demand placed on us today and also a comfort The demand is that we may never presume upon the Lord's kindness to the neglect of humility and preparation. We are called as Christians to a fruitful work, and the fruit of that work will be inspected. Jesus will reveal the true contents of all hearts, and so we must be about the work of conversion and the transformation of the heart. The comfort, though, is that we are not worthy to or ready to meet the Lord when he comes to us, but he is, as Joel tells us, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. He makes a gift of himself and his life to us, despite our unworthiness, as a reminder that it is a gift and not a reward. Our Orthodox brethren call Lent the season of bright sadness. Our way of life is upended by a vision of each of our ends. But there in that terrible vision, the Lord is there and he is there even there with us. The darkness of the pronouncement that we are but dust and unto dust will return is no darkness to him who is the light of the world that the darkness cannot overcome. Easter will come, not as a reward for a scrupulous Lent, but as a gift, the gift of God. Comfort in the midst of demand, mercy in the midst of unworthiness, and life in the midst of death. This is Ash Wednesday, the day of the Lord is near. Let us allow ourselves to be disrupted by that truth, to be converted again, to receive the gift of of a new heart that the Lord wants to make within us. Let us bear one another up in the Lenten campaign, and let us never lose hope. For the work that begins with the grim reality of death today is the work that will end on the great day of the Lord In the good fruit of reconciliation, of resurrection, and the eternal life of the world to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.